Welcome to episode eight of the Alexis Pereira program. I'm Alexis Pereira. With me, as always, is my co-host Alex Estrada. Hello, old friend. Alex, how, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? Pretty good. You know, it's uh, thunderstorms out there. Uh, you know, making me worried about our weekend trip that we have planned. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you and I are going out of state this weekend. That's right. Bringing the ladies. That's uh, right. Can't All wait. Three of them. That's yeah. right. That's actually true. Um, now, Alex, um, you would. S- I think we we can agree that uh, while I am straight, uh, I am definitely would be considered a hero of the LGBTQ community. Right? Yes, yes, I think that's uh, an icon. Yeah, I believe exactly. You know, it's like one of those things where, like, you know, when a team sometimes puts somebody in their Hall of Fame, even though he never played for them, like. <laughs> Like, I think Jackie Robinson is on the Mets Hall of Fame, but he never played for the Mets. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's amazing. So, amazing true fact. Exactly. Amazing true fact. Amazingly true. Amazing Mets. Uh, and um, I would say that I definitely will, one day, if I ever expire or I'm canceled, uh, I will definitely be voted into the, that Hall of Fame. Uh, but uh, I think the reason why is because I'm friends with a guy on the committee. And uh, he is definitely... If you want to talk about uh, LGBTQ Hall of Fame, uh, is a switch hitter, uh, and <laughs> he's he's furious with me right now. He's looking at me. Yeah, straight, he's stomping on his AirPods. Yeah, he's <laughs> walking out of the room. He's not happy because he's not been introduced yet. <laughs> he has shaken his head no a thousand times. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, he was on the other two. He is a co-founder of Off Magazine. Uh, Ryan Leach, how are you? Hi, Alexis. Hi, Alex. I'm doing great. How are you? Why did Jackie Robinson never play for the Mets? You know, the, exactly. I, I've been wondering that for years. Um, but uh, I believe that the reason why is because he, the Mets, I think, were created after the Brooklyn Dodgers moved to Los Angeles. And then the Mets were like, oh, we'll honor our New York past and honor Jackie Robinson. Oh, good. Yeah. So, a little trivia. Sports metaphor. There you go. I don't know what the audience is for this podcast, but yeah. We actually have the metrics. Um, It's uh, 40% uh, people in Saudi Arabia trying to learn English. Uh, Another 35% of uh, people in Venezuela who think I'm a DJ named Alexis Pereira. Um, Oh, no. Yeah. And then the others are people I ask to listen to while I'm on the phone. Oh, that's so so sweet. (laughs) And don't forget your Chinese political prisoners. That's true. <laughs> They're forced to listen. So I don't know if that counts. They have to listen as punishment. Yeah. Uh, how are you doing, Ryan? How's your quarantine? Uh, it's fine. Uh, I'm in a very rural place. I'm in, like, rural Virginia. So everything is, um, you know, it's a lot of, like, people who don't believe that the virus is real, but also not enough places to go inside for it to infect people. Mm, yeah. <laughs> not enough shoes. Yeah, not a shoe. <laughs> they're still they're still so anti shoe here. It's like they haven't even gotten on the masks yet. <laughs> um, so now you're you're originally from Virginia, right? Yeah. So uh, my dad's whole family is from uh, like like the triangle between where uh, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, and Wheeling, West Virginia is. Wow. So I was born. I was born over there, but I moved here when I was three years old. So I've I've really only ever known Virginia as home, where I usually find my girlfriends. So that's where. Nice to know. Oh, that's right. I can't believe you've been to Cincinnati with Aaron. That is wild. <laughs> I think I did warn you. 
I think when I found out that she was taking you to Cincinnati, like on the Kentucky border, I was like, just smile. <laughs> yeah. yeah I was doing a lot. The, I was definitely doing a lot. Of sp- yeah, sorry, I was going to say the chili on spaghetti thing. Uh, was that, did I miss? <laughs> yes. <laughs> did I miss see that? They do a thing. They do a thing in Cincinnati where uh, they put, uh, they give you spaghetti and they put beans on that spaghetti and they put cheese on those beans. And uh, this is a delicacy in Cincinnati. Oh, my God. Uh, and so yeah. when I was eating it, I took a little bit of the cheese off, and everybody in the restaurant was just staring at me. Just, oh, my God. That that Yemeni boy. <laughs> <laughs> my goodness. That that white family servant has, has ruined, <laughs> ruined our food. Because, you know, in Cincinnati, like, you know, it's really just white or black. Yeah. So, so when you see like Latinx people or Asian people, it almost stands out more than if you're African American. Yeah, and they definitely uh, have specific places to live. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you don't need to hear about segregation. You're from Queens. So. That's true. <laughs> the home of our great president, Donald J. Trump. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, the person who destroyed the country. I'm so glad he's not from the South. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would have been horrible for us. He's from where you're from. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he grew up um, 10 minutes from where I grew up. Wow. Believe it or not. Wow. I mean, you know, the South certainly tried to destroy the country, but as you know, they lost the war. But, you know, in a way, Donald Trump won it. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) that northern uh, ingenuity, right? Those damn yuppies. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I mean, growing up down here, people did call people carpetbaggers. Um, So, I mean, that the legacy of the Civil War, I'm sure we'll talk about it later in the podcast, but it was deeply ingrained in the place where I grew up. I talked about this before, but when I was in New Orleans, um, a woman, we passed by the Jefferson Davis statue, and a woman talk, was talking to her daughter and pointed out the window and said, that's the man that tried to protect us from the Yankees. <laughs> so, With his bare hands. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad a women can speak and be heard. That's so important. <laughs> you know, I sometimes am, too. <laughs> now, Ryan, you... Uh, you ha- went to an interesting high school, um, mm-hmm. and which may not be uncommon throughout the South, but uh, tell us the name of your high school. Or so, yeah, so uh, I went to, I'll start from the beginning, I went to Battlefield Park Elementary School, I went to Stonewall Jackson Middle School, where the mascot was the Rebel, and I went to Lee Davis High School, where the mascot was the Confederate. So we were <laughs> the Lee Davis Confederates. Now, they combined the names. Like, that's the funny thing about it. It's like, they're like, should it be uh, uh, General Lee? Should it be Jefferson Davis? Just put them all in the pot. Mm-hmm. Just call it all that. And good old Stonewall Jackson right across the street at the middle school. Unreal. Yeah. And these were named not in the 1860s. These are named probably in the 1960s, right? Yeah. So uh, Lee Davis High School was opened in 1959. That's five years after the Brown v. Board decision by the Supreme Court. And it was opened in 1959 as a school only for white children. And this is five years after the Brown decision. Wow. So Stonewall Jackson, the Hanover County schools where I grew up and I went to school, uh, they are. They only met federal integration requirements in 1968, which is, um, you know, 14 years after Brown v. Board said integrate with all deliberate speed. Uh, and then Stonewall Jackson opened two years later in 1970, and it was named that 
but it opened as an integrated school. Although the district is predominantly white, so, you know, yeah. even though it did open as an integrated school, it was sort of with a caveat. Alex, what are the enforcement, uh, I mean, obviously we, we're gonna, not going to re-legislate the past, but, like, what are the court's, like, avenues to enforcement with this stuff? Because they also do, like, all deliberate speed with, like, abortion clinics and things like that. Like, what do, what can they do? Or they just have to wait? Well, t- yeah, typically they have to rely on the other branches of the federal government to enforce their rulings. Uh, uh, I don't know if you recall the, uh, the Trail of Tears decision. Uh, in which the Supreme Court um, ruled for the Native Americans uh, who were under uh, threat of displacement. And then Andrew Jackson uh, Jackson famously defied the order and said, uh, the court has made their decision, now let them enforce it. And so they sort of, they basically rely on the other, you know, they don't have an army. Uh, they don't have direct control over any of the federal agencies or any state agencies. They basically rely on the mechanism within the federal government to uh, bring the ruling into effect. And that's why typically after a decision comes down, uh, the, uh, you know, usually the executive branches and the legislative branches and their legal analysts and consultants say we're reviewing the, uh, the court's ruling because then they have to, uh, sort of interpret it and determine how they're going to, uh, parlay it into action. And so the thing is the court doesn't really have, uh, the means of doing it. Like they have the ruling. And yeah. it's on the other branches to sort of take that ruling and put it into effect. So all they have to do, they have to basically wait until they get sued. You know, that's basically all. Like, you, if, you mean- if somebody makes a decision, right, for example, like reintegration, rather, right. uh, then they basically like, they kind of are playing chicken for like five, ten years until like somebody might sue them. And ask for right. damages. Well, the, well, there was like well, you remember specifically with uh, with Brown uh, v. Board, Eisenhower sent in the um, uh, the hundred first Airborne, uh, and that was because the governor of uh, I believe it was George Wallace, correct? Yes, yes. in Alabama, mm-hmm. right in Alabama, uh, re- basically refused to recognize the court's decision, and so uh, the president basically said, like, well, we're bringing in uh, the military to enforce it. And uh, he had to step aside. So yeah, so and it looked like a war zone. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you've seen photographs of that, I mean, when he stood in the archway of the University of Alabama, I mean, there it looked like. I mean, it looked like our cities looked maybe a few weeks ago when everything started <laughs> to happen. Right. right. It's yeah. a yeah. It's a confrontation. So yeah. So typically, like a person can sue, um, and you know they they could have a remedy against the uh, the federal government if you know they have oversight in a situation and aren't uh, enacting the court's decision. Uh, but yeah, but typically it's, um, you know, it's on the, uh, the rest of the country to sort of bring the ruling uh, into effect and to uh, give it life. Hmm. And remember, that was only public schools. Of course, other things had to be integrated by other Supreme Court cases right. afterwards yeah. and before. I mean, restaurants, hotels, even like interstate travel was technically segregated. Am yeah. I, am I wrong? Was there like three Brown v. Boards? Like, I feel like there was like a thir- like third and a fourth. It was heard, I believe, multiple times. I don't know if that's true, Alex, if you can attest to that. I mean, I don't, I don't, I only know of the, the single Brown v. Board decision. I'm sure what typically happens is sometimes the court will remand specific legal questions that are, 
uh, that are not before it, or they might say like, well, we're not ruling on this because that's not the issue before us, but we remand to a lower court uh, to make this determination or that determination. It was uh, also bundled. So it wasn't just one case. So the Brown right. family was from Topeka, Kansas, uh, and they were brought by the NAACP to the federal court systems to integrate the schools. But uh, I know... Um, who uh, Malcolm Gladwell did an incredible podcast about all the like the reality of that case, yeah. but there were multiple different instances. Don't go like, to that were... podcast, folks. <laughs> Don't Stay go on there. This. Stay on this podcast. <laughs> but yeah, that um, it was multiple families across the South, and I believe one of them was, and then of course the miscegenation case came later in the 1970s to actually right, integrate versus Virginia. Correct. Yeah, marriages themselves, um, <laughs> which is very important. Um, yeah. Okay, so yeah. now getting back to uh, going to uh, uh, Jefferson uh, Lee Davis, I uh, Lee Lee Davis, um, formerly known as yeah, formerly known as you know, I, I, and I think we're kind of hinting at this. Obviously, this is like a symbol of anger at integration. Like this is this isn't like some kind of weird like. I think that uh, often when people think about um, at least here and maybe in New York City, I think people think about these names. As though, like, oh, well, yeah, they named it that when the Confederacy uh, uh, first declared independence. And then, you know, they've kept the name. (laughs) (laughs) All their fancy high schools. (laughs) Yeah. And they kept the name. And then, and now, you know, now, you know, in the retrospect, we want to uh, bring it back. But I think that, you know, um, uh, people need to realize is that these were, like, Sim- symbolic gestures of like against black people like being like no this is a white country this is a white city yeah i mean it has been an incredible experience to get involved in this because i knew that the name was wrong the impetus for me to begin this petition to change the names happened in 2017 and it was significant because i'm a graduate of the university of virginia and that was the year that the ku klux klan and all of these white uh all right nationalists went to Charlottesville, Virginia, and murdered Heather Hare with their car. It was a man who had driven down from Ohio. And um, the thing that plagued me the most was that after Heather was murdered, not to mention all of the other violence that happened in Charlottesville that weekend, uh, the people back home, I was shocked to hear that they would say, well, maybe his gear got stuck. Mm-hmm. Maybe his gear got stuck. So I went to the University of Virginia. I walked on the downtown mall. I know what those alleyways look like. You do not drive through that alleyway at that speed without realizing that you're going to do some kind of damage. I mean, the alleyway, you can like, you can run from one end to the other in five seconds. I mean, it's narrow, it's tiny, it's one way, and there's people surrounding you all over the place, right? So for people to say that maybe his gear got stuck was so painful to me to hear because it was so symbolic of the systematic ignorance that I grew up with because you heard, you know, Robert E. Lee is a good man. I've heard slaves were happy. They were sad to be freed. I've heard, um, you know, I mean, it's really devastating to hear these things because these are people who, you know, otherwise are educated people. Yeah. And there is really this stereotype of like the ignorant white trash cracker who lives in the trailer park and hates black people, you know, all these other things. When in reality, a lot of the low income housing in my community, that is integrated housing. And the people who are the most problematic, who have access to education, they have degrees from top universities and they come to this town because they have access to wealth and they can afford the old plantation houses, you know, I mean, um, it's a problem that they believe these things and they are the ones who are spreading this information. Oh, the Trump administration. 
basically. Like, that's who you're talking about. Like, these, mm-hmm. the, the people that we thought would be lean liberal because of, like, their education and the money, you know, no, they're not. <laughs> they're mm-hmm. not. And, in fact, they're very not. Um, and, in fact, they hate all poor people, but they especially, you know, uh, hate uh, people of color. And, um, yeah, the so you were involved in this position, uh, and uh, you helped change the name, you know, just to uh, – get that uh, uh, end of the story out of the way, but, like, you must have, like, gotten, like, threatened like crazy. Yeah. I mean, people said... Uh, I'm still getting threats. So, people have said, you know, faggot, go back to where you're from, because they, they saw that I lived in New York City. Uh, they told me to go back where I came from, that I never really lived here. It was this absolute outsider argument when in fact I'm, I'm more from here than most of those people. Mm-hmm. Because one thing that we kept hearing was I've never heard a black person call these names racist. And in my opinion, if you've lived in this town for your entire life where there is, you know, a significant black population that lives here. Um, and if you've never heard them say that those names are racist, that is simply because they probably don't trust you. They probably don't feel comfortable confiding in you. And honestly, maybe you've never met them before. And I think that that is really powerful because, um, you know, I, I lived in many different places in this County with, uh, you know, I started living with both my parents in a house when my parents got divorced, I lived in an apartment complex. And after I lived in the apartments, I moved into a trailer park with my mother and my mom still lives there today. And that is integrated housing. Uh, one interesting thing is that, uh, you know, they I've, I've worked with a lot of local progressives in uh, my county. A lot of them are transplants. They're not from here originally. And because a lot of people who tend to be liberal and progressive, they leave once they get the opportunity. Mm-hmm. So those people, when I was working with them, they've always been trying to register people to vote in my mother's trailer park. And when they knock on the doors, no one answers. And it's because it's not a familiar face, and oftentimes it's a white face. And my mother is Mexican-American, um, like I'm mixed race. I, I, I present as white, and I do identify as white. But it's this interesting all thing. Latino, all Latino <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Hit the button. Finally. But it's this thing of like, uh, you know, my mother worked with those progressive people to register Democrats in her trailer park, you know, where she lives. And... That was significant because when my mom went with those people, they answered the door because they knew her and they they saw what she looked like. So I feel lucky because I have been exposed to other people in this county and that has opened my eyes in many ways before I even left, you know, locally to go to New York and to go to college. And then, of course, when I went to the University of Virginia, I realized it's a public school with a private school demographic. It has a declining black enrollment. It has a significantly, you know, wealthy white population that benefits... No, it's no? a public school tuition. What is it? It's like uh, $10,000 oh. with room and board uh, per semester, which of course is expensive. I mean, yeah. it's not comparable to community, like community colleges or the CUNY system, which is much more accessible. Where I work. Yeah. Right? <laughs> we love we love the CUNY system. But, um, you know, I mean, uh, the reason why it's so white at UVA is because of uh, legacies. Like, for instance... I've heard from people in the admissions office that if you're an out-of-state student, but you have a parent or a grandparent who went to the University of Virginia, that they'll put your application in the in-state pile, which is significant because 70% of the students are are, um, in-state students that they accept. So it greatly benefits you. And then, of course, the University of Virginia didn't integrate until 1969, 1970. So the legacies are all white. Yes. 
Right. And it's shameful. And then, of course, you see that like a, a good portion of the black population that goes to University of Virginia are like the definition of black excellence because, of course, their parents went to, you know, Howard and all of these like incredible uh, HBCUs like um, Morehouse College because they weren't allowed to attend the University of Virginia when they went to college. And so, um, you know, I, I saw that the racism from my own hometown replicated when I went to college, yeah. which... Of course, and then you go to New York, and you see it every day as well. I mean, <laughs> yeah. one of one of the most segregated school systems in the country. Uh, the effects of redlining still have not been reversed. I mean, I myself am a gentrifier. Oh, it's still uh, even today, even in Long Island, there was a big article about the places that they'll show you. My parents, when they were buying a house in Queens uh, in in nineteen eighty three. Uh, they didn't know where to put my parents because my, my dad is uh, Indian Portuguese. My mom is Colombian. So they just put us, and thankfully, they put us in a, a black neighborhood uh, in Queens Village. Um, oh, wow. And, uh, you know, I was very happy growing up there. And, uh, uh, in fact, it worked out really well for us because the property values where they put us went from being very low <laughs> to <laughs> to went, went up like 10 times. But, wow. you know, it's, I, I want to go back to something you said. It. It boggles my mind when people say no, like there's two there's two things they say. Well, no black person's ever told me that. That's one. And then you always wonder, like, uh, okay, are you like f- big in the black community? Like, what are you talking about? Like, how many people do you talk to about this? Like, and then the other one is also like, whenever a white person gets caught, say something racist or something like that, another white person will be like, well, he's never called me the N word. You know, like there's right. always that weird, like, right. uh, you know, I, I mean, know. race is complex. I mean, you know, that also as like an interracial person growing up, I mean, you feel that like all the time, sort of, because you sort of like when you're interracial, you, you straddle different worlds. You know, I can't tell you how many times white people have said hateful things about Mexican people in front of me or like Latinos in general. And, uh, I mean, it's your role to sort of stand up against that as a white person in general. Yeah. But when it's you're truly defending your own family in that sense as well. And, you know, it's, it's really that 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 logic of um, of like maybe his gear got stuck. That is so. So, for instance, in my county recently, a man drove through protesters like he went to the neighboring county that's closer to Richmond City and he ran his car into protesters. No one was seriously injured this time. But when he was arrested, he came out openly and said he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, this man marched in our Christmas parade in my hometown oh my in God. December of 2019. So Tell it's that recent. Uh, I mean, so, like, when you grow up here, just the Confederacy is in everything that you do. It's in, I mean, the names of the schools is just the start. Uh, you know, the ba- the battlefields are all over my county. You can go visit them. You can go hiking. People walk their dogs there. Um, you know, when I was a kid, they took us on a field trip to the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond. I mean, The Museum like, of all- the Confederacy? Yeah, and it still exists to this day. They ch- they burned down the dollars of the Confederacy building recently, the protesters. But it's all over. I mean, it's it's everywhere. And, and people still, you know, I think it's that... Si- I just could not tolerate that ignorance any longer. Like, yeah. hearing that, that phrase of, like, well, maybe his gear got stuck. Maybe Robert E. Lee was a good man. Maybe slaves were happy. I've even heard, like, 80% of slaves were treated like family. I mean, things like that. And those people vote. Like, they believe those things. They get the same vote that you get sometimes they face less voter suppression so they're voting in higher numbers um 
you know, it's 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 really damaging. And, and immediately, the way that I started this was I did a Facebook status. The Facebook status got like 3,000 comments. Yes. It got 300 shares. And what was wild was it was people from home. It was a public status who were fighting with like Joel Kim Booster and <laughs> Anna Dresden, who were like, you know, New York comedy staples. Yeah. And, and also, these were, if, uh, if you're listening, Joel and Anna, please accept my friend request. I've got, <laughs> I've got great stuff, too. You know, Millie Tamares and um, Jonathan Braylock, mm-hmm. all these people, you know, they were like, they could not believe that my school was named this and that these people were making these kinds of claims. And it was really a collision of my two worlds, you know, and it was really, really wild. And people like, you know, we were talking about Aaron Jackson a few minutes ago, like Aaron's from the South, Aaron and Josh Sharp, Josh is from the South. Like, these are people who know this kind of insane logic that that's completely <laughs> destructive. Yeah. And, um, you know, you know, um, immediately the best thing that happened was the NAACP contacted me and a local progressive group called Together Hanover contacted me and they were essentially looking for like a white person who wasn't a transplant to help them. Like somebody who, I mean, really there are two worlds. I mean, there's so many worlds that exist in this tiny little county because people just don't know each other. Like, for instance, we had a protest recently and there were a couple of um, white supremacists who came to mock the uh, protest. They didn't know their names. I made a face. We took pictures of them and I made a Facebook status. And within 10 minutes, we had identified all of them because my my networks overlap with those people because I went to school with them. My diploma is the same diploma that they have, whether they're a member of the Ku Klux Klan or not. Are these like are these guys like. Well, who are they? Like, you know, these KKK members in the year 2020? Like, right. who are these people? Like, are they like, do they run a Kinko's? Are they unemployed? You know, like, I, I guess I'm a lot of they're them, white. No, <laughs> they own houses. They own houses. And not only do they own houses, but they um, they own houses and they're, they're parents. They have children. We had a we had a demonstration and people came to counter protest us and they um, brought their children Ugh. to like shout at the NAACP. I mean, the school board ultimately when they voted to change the name, which they did in a four to three vote. I mean, it was not unanimous. Yeah. And uh, you know, the, the NAACP essentially filed a lawsuit after the Ku Klux Klan marched in my hometown, and. Uh, our lawyers were pro bono for the NAACP, right? And I owe a huge amount of gratitude to the families and the children who chose to be the defendants in that case, or the, the um, what is it, Alex? Plaintiffs. The, ones, the plaintiffs. <laughs> yeah. Who chose to be the plaintiffs in that case. They really put themselves out there. I mean, people were afraid to, I mean, we sent alumni to go speak at the school board meetings. People were afraid. Well, they were, they were What was the case exactly, though? They were suing the school to change the name? They, yeah, they sued the school district saying that it was a violation of their 14th Amendment right to, um, uh, it was a violation of the 14th Amendment right to, like, essentially have to wear the Confederates on their jerseys to participate actively in student life, which we admittedly, it is a weak uh, legal argument, essentially because there's very little precedent for that. Alex, is there any precedent for that? Uh, very little. Uh, yeah. Said, it's, and it wouldn't, yeah, because the 14th Amendment, uh, that's the uh, the due process uh, amendment, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. And that was our argument, but we knew it was weak. We got dismissed at the district uh, circuit, which is the fourth district circuit, um, and we went to appeal before the names were actually changed. So 
this is a Tea Party county. Like, the Tea Party runs this county. It's completely corrupt. Uh, it's mostly white men. There's only, between the school board and the board of supervisors and the local leadership, there's only one black person mm. out of, like, almost 20 people. Her name's Ola Hawkins, and she was one of the votes to change the names uh, both times that we had a vote. And, um, you know, uh, it, it's, it was, um, you know, these these... This school board, they wasted over $200,000 fighting the lawsuit. Against and the pro bono lawyers. Yes. And so, therefore, I mean, you just, you claim that you hate wasting taxpayer money. You And essentially, the, their justification was they did a survey in the county in 2018, and 75% of the county said that they wanted to keep uh, the names the same. So they used that survey, which was not a scientific survey. Yeah. It was not done by a third party. They used that to justify um, wasting $200,000 to fight the NAACP in 2020. And not only that, but the letters to the editor in the local newspaper were saying things like, the NAACP is coming to our quiet Christian town just to Ugh. stir up trouble when they should be in Richmond City Schools where there's black students who have nothing, no no books. Books, no school supplies, the <laughs> roofs are leaking, the buildings are old. Oh, I wonder why that is. <laughs> Meanwhile, we have a, um, a building that leaks just the same. You know why? Because it was built in 1959 as an all-white high school, and it hasn't been renovated since. So, uh. I mean, that is, I mean, it's, um, like, I have renovated it, but, like, it's it was falling apart when I graduated from there. And there's just an absolute... Um, the other thing is, it's like, once we unveiled the history, right? Like, we showed it was an all-white high school. We showed it was um, it was rooted in massive resistance to integration in public schools. You see that people are ignorant. And once we taught them the history, some of them really did change their minds. Yeah. They said, wow, this is something we need to change. White people. White people who have no reason to, to, to want to change these names. Once they heard the history, they said, wow, that's a great argument that we can't deny that. But then there were people who heard that information and they chose, even with an education, they chose ignorance. No, well, for most people, yeah, it's very difficult, but it is split because all the information that's presented is presented by white supremacists. Like they're, they're, they have control of the, the narrative. And once you break that narrative, there's, it does actually split because there are some people who are like, oh, actually, you know what? I kind of do like white supremacy, so I'm going to stick with it. And then there are other people who are like, ooh, what? <laughs> what was this named after? You know, I didn't know that uh, uh, the UCB4 felt that way. Um. Uh, well, this woman, one of the most powerful moments of this entire campaign was a woman um, named Nanny Davis. She was one of the original people to integrate my high school, and I got to meet her. And it was such an honor to meet her because she stood in front of the school board. This woman who should not have been forced to integrate a high school and she should not have been forced to speak about this name but she chose to disrupt her own life to do both yeah. and you know over the span of 50 years and she spoke in front of the school board and she held up her school ring and she said my family worked so hard to save money so that me one of the first people to graduate from high school and my whole family could uh you know get a class ring upon my graduation and she held it up and on the inside of the ring were jefferson davis and robert e lee etched into the class ring their faces the same faces that hung on banners in my high school when I went there up until a few days ago when they finally took them down. And, um, I mean, that just goes to show people think that this is a, a long ways away, but these people, you know, um, the, you know, Congress members are dying who were civil rights leaders and yeah. they're dying like this week, you know, John Lewis and, 
um, you know, that is so powerful that those people are still alive. And now I have met them. And what is most interesting is, you know, some of these leaders are held up as heroes. But then you can meet these people who were just students. They were literally just students. The girl from the Alabama case is still alive, though she's a woman now, obviously. But like, yeah, she's. Yeah, I mean, it's powerful to think that because. You know, for me, I always hated the names, but I didn't know the history. And when I learned the history, I just realized how deep these things run. Um, And, you know, they did that audit recently in New York City and they found out how many things are named after slave owners. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's hundreds Mm -hmm. streets and schools and, you know, buildings. And um, that's just in New York City. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's powerful. And, um, you know, my mother herself, she was bust when she went to Dallas um, City's public schools in the 1970s. So she was bust from um, like a Latino black neighborhood to like a white a white high school, um, which is interesting. And she like talks about that. We had a conversation about that after Kamala Harris called out Joe Biden yeah. for being bust, and my mom was like, "I was bust too," and I was like, "I had no idea. Like I never I never knew that." Talking about Kamala and her, uh, you know, her the VP of uh, Biden, uh, <laughs> Kamala. <laughs> At this point, not official yet. Uh, mommy. Uh, Look, she never locked up my family, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, Probably right. Fine. That's just that's just uh, people over there. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. So, like, do they know what they're going to re- name the school or? No, but there's a few good things. So, apparently, a while back, the school board got everyone convinced that they could vote to never name a school building after a person ever again. And that happened in the 80s or the 90s. So, it absolutely will not be a person, which I think is excellent. They form a committee. The NAACP right now is working really hard to get as many of their members on the committee as possible. Um, And they're going to try to figure out some sort of name. I mean, other schools in Virginia, there was one. I think um, Elise Morales went to a school in Fairfax County that was named after Robert E. Lee because her and I have talked about this. And they renamed it Justice High School, which I don't think we're going to get that. (laughs) But um, the Northern Virginia suburbs are like very liberal, very diverse. So I'm sure that was easier for them to get that. (laughs) We're going to be lucky if we just get something that's, you know. We think it might be Mechanicsville High School, and then the road behind the middle school is called Old Hickory, so perhaps they'll call it Old Hickory Middle School. <laughs> they can have it after Andrew another- Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> they have to na- rename it later. Oh, my gosh. You know, they could have, you know, they could stick with Lee Davis, just say it's the uh, 1970s ball player. <laughs> well, somebody said that you should keep it Lee Davis, and you should name it for uh, Barbara Lee and Angela Davis. Oh, oh. yeah. That's fun, too. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even believe it. Just really, it really gets me that they they gave it to two of them. You know, like it just yeah. it still really tickles me. Like that. They well, really there's other high them. schools here that are not named for those things. I mean, there's other ones. There's Atlee High School, which is named for like a road, and then there's like Patrick Henry, which you know he wasn't perfect, but he certainly wasn't like the head hey, of the Confederate yeah. Army. This is a pro-revolution uh, 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 podcast. Yeah. Okay. American, American Revolution. Tell me more about the American Revolution. How did it go? Uh, was well, it quick? Yeah. Was it, it slow? It, well, okay, in 1676. Uh, <laughs> Ryan, spoiler alert, we're still fighting it. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. I haven't lifted a finger. Like, <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, a lot of people said, like, uh, you know, you... 
this has really helped me to sort of just look at how I'm complicit in things, you know. But growing up here, I've always just, when I left here and realized just how ignorant it was, like, I knew it was ignorant, but then when you realize just how ignorant it really was, and then you go to a college and you realize so many people there are still so racist and profiting off of segregation in these horrible ways, and then you move to New York City, like, one of the most diverse cities in the world, and then you get there and you realize the same systems are in place, and, yeah. and then you work in the entertainment industry, and you realize that it's it's almost worse than your high school that was named for Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis. Alex, and- <laughs> Alex is it worse? Because I feel it is worse. Like, the, ra- the racism in the entertainment industry is worse than what I, I grew know, up with. It strikes me as the same racism as always. <laughs> yeah? I, I was yeah. shocked, because I, I did go to a mostly... Actually, my high school was mixed, but... Uh, it was like kind of middle class because it was a Catholic high school, but in mm. Queens or whatever. Ooh. But um, but like my neighborhood, I grew up in a black neighborhood, um, and uh, you know, like whatever. Like I grew up, it was d- diverse, and I went to uh, UCB, and like I love UCB, like loved UCB, like I loved the shows and stuff like that. But like tr- trying to break into that and the entertainment industry above that, it was like holy smokes! Like this is just. You know they are not comfortable <laughs> around a Latino person. They I read your article. Your article was shocking. Not shocking because I didn't believe it, but shocking. Uh, yes, the just... uh, Tom and Jerry essay. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the other article that I wrote. Yeah, I mean it was it was like that. Like um, this guy. I, for those of you who are listening, like the or, or read the article, like uh, I wrote an article about my first uh, job interview for um, a TV writer job. And the guy, it was like for like, you know, they're looking for Latino writers. And he was so adamant about like me having, me being vetted. He was just like, you have to like write for TV shows and like, you know, intern and stuff like that. And and like in my head, like, you know, at the moment I was just like in total shock. But later on, I was just like, wow, he really thinks that I'm going to like pull a knife on him or something like, I don't <laughs> oh, know. Wow. Or, or like not show up or like impregnate his daughter. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I always get that vibe. They're like, they're like, you know, oh, this guy, you want to get this? Guy? Let's just get like a. This like Latino guy, like he's just gonna, you know, he's gonna do what they all do, which is nothing. oh no, he's I gonna just, I mean, all the writers and <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I mean, I feel very lucky because I have always said that I have had such incredible mentors in the comedy community who are very diverse. I mean, I think Joel Kim Booster grew up in an evangelical family as well, you know, in a very evangelical place. And his comedy has always spoken to me in a really powerful way. Mm -hmm. And so has Aaron Jackson's. I think Aaron Jackson's comedy sort of, I mean, he's queer and his comedy really captures the absurdity of living in a place where, you know, all the authority figures are so like Sam Taggart grew up in Virginia as well. Um, Millie Tamaras has just been such a powerful mentor to me and to many people, I think, in the comedy community. Um, and I've been Yang. Her. Yeah. Yes, of course. Ryan, is she going to like that? You're very, very lucky, Ryan. My only mentor has been Alexis Ferrara. Yeah. I can't believe it. <laughs> Excuse me, I've also mentored Ryan. So I yes, think. I mean, he's a true friend of the gays, truly, if you say. Yeah, See? a fellow traveler, as it were. <laughs> I did go to Alexis's birthday one year um, at a bar where basketball was playing. So if I've not sacrificed, Sacrifice myself for the straight community. I don't know. What I feel. Got. I still feel so bad about that. It's like it's so funny. I don't. know I just picked a random bar and it happened to be like the the University of Virginia bar. But it was. It was yeah. horrible. I was like, there's so many people from my past in this bar. I'm so upset. Um, <laughs> but you, you know, things you do for love and friendship. Well, it's incredible. You know, I told you for coming to my birthday, you will be at my next show at UCB. So Aww. there it is. 
I mean, it's interesting too. I think a lot of my comedy, I'm a satirist. I, I off magazine is really fun to do. We have an incredible team and I'll just quickly say like a lot of my comedy is about confronting white liberalism. You know, I am white and I am yeah. liberal and I am a gentrifier, but I, I, I do it to challenge myself as well. Um, but one of the biggest issues I think that makes white liberals uncomfortable is gentrification and housing. I mean, you love, like white liberals love to say like, take down the Confederate statues, but then you're like, hey, when you pay the rent that you're paying, you're segregating your neighborhood based on race. <laughs> I've seen you post and that they, a lot. <laughs> yes, and because it upsets people because immediately the response is, all right, that's very different. I'm only one person, one thing at a time, uh, where everyone's doing their best. And it's like, of course I'm not like blaming the individual, but I am saying you know the landlords can't do this without us and that's a fact and um people get very uncomfortable because they don't like to see themselves as bad people and i guess i've always just sort of seen myself as a bad person because people have told me (laughs) that i'm a bad person there's no shame in being a bad person i mean if you live in a racist country chances are you're going to be a bad person because you're living in a racist country and so you're going to have to do bad things just by like walking outside going to college and the first time i ever realized that um you know a lot of my joy and success was at the expense of others was going to the university of virginia because there were all these kids who were like we're the smartest in the state and we're excellence. And I was like, really, you think you're excellent? Like you really think an institution that was excellent would have a declining black enrollment? Like really interesting to me. Legacies, uh, rising legacies. But I would of course get into more fights with other scholarship students because other scholarship kids, especially other white scholarship kids. And this goes for like, not even just the university of Virginia, but really anywhere. I mean, there's this bootstraps mentality of like, I worked hard and I've gotten what I have. Like, I earned it. I deserve it. Um, I'm not doing anything wrong. And the reality is it's like 100 rich kids applied to go here and 100 poor kids applied to go here. And they all deserve to go here. And all 100 of the rich kids who got in went to the University of Virginia and have their degrees now. Mm -hmm. And I would say out of the 100 poor kids who applied, maybe 40 of us got the access that we were needing to attend the university and then out of that 40 maybe 20 of us made it to graduation because of all the barriers that exist within it and that was eye-opening for me uh in a big way what is um what does fran Lebowitz say that uh people say oh we all started from the same starting line but like black people they just to get to the starting line is like a ton of work and then right and then after that they're like okay now we race right And I feel lucky, like, I've had very supportive parents through all of this. Like, they don't necessarily, they're not the ones on the front lines of it, like, like making these demands of our community and stuff, but they've really supported me in a really big way. And of course, my dad's from, like, a dairy farm in Appalachia, and my mother was, like, she grew up, you know, she spent her young years in Brownsville, Texas, on the border in the Rio Grande Valley. Wow. And, um, you know, those are not progressive places by any, you know, means, like, um, they're Democrat strongholds actually but they're definitely not progressive and yeah yeah. this is like an anti so like i've been watching a little bit of the west wing recently oh god and uh (laughs) heard of it i've heard of it this is a funny like you're talking about west wing liberals the people who are upset because they're just like i'm smart and i by being smart i am affecting change and i'm doing the best i can am i a perfect person no but i'm on the winning team and there has been a pushback recently where we realize that a lot of these people, these West Wing liberal smart guys, they are not only not neutral, 
they are in fact part of the problem <laughs> you know yes. they are they're in they're enacting solutions that are like not solutions they actually cause more problems it's horrific i mean look at the crime bill under bill clinton that's like in the welfare reforms under him i mean and then people love to say you know like in the same way that conservatives love to say oh well ben carson grew up in the projects like Democrats are the first people to say, oh, well, Bill Clinton had a single mom mm-hmm. and like yeah. a stepdad who beat him and he grew up in Arkansas. So like, what do you know? Obama was born then, in Indonesia. Right. <laughs> and then of course, like, so there's all these things where, and I really think that a big thing about it is that white liberals, and when I say white liberalism, it's the same thing with like white supremacy, like white liberalism, it pervades people who aren't white as well. And it invades the institutions of which we have to, you know, be complicit in in order to gain success and wealth. And so white liberals are largely shielded from having conversations. And then I know because I came from like a sort of a poor background in some ways. When I, when I go to shows and schools, I can literally say anything about where I'm from and yeah. nobody questions me because I'm one of like five people. And most of the people think that, you know, oh, I got out of where I'm from because I worked hard and I pulled myself up from my bootstraps. And I know that's not true because there's lots of people who are very smart and very hardworking and they stayed where I'm from and they got addicted to heroin and they couldn't get out and they've had a really hard time. And I would never say, I always say I'm lucky. Like, did I work hard? Of course. Like a lot of people work yeah. hard. But, um, you know, that is what a lot of my comedy is directed at, um, is just trying to make white liberals and people who are complicit in white liberalism see that it's a destructive force and we're complicit in it. And really, you've really seen during the coronavirus pandemic that... um, White liberals will never put their comfort before the safety of people who are the most vulnerable in society. They won't ever do it, myself included, you know? (laughs) I mean, I left. I left. I mean, I came down here to work with the NAACP, but, um, you know, I I came here because I've also been comfortable staying at my parents' house. And um, Well, everybody does, in a sense. But some people don't get a choice. Some people don't get a choice because, for instance, people say like, oh, self-care, like I'm going to go to the beach house. I'm going to go upstate. There's no harm in it. I'm being safe. But even the fact that you have that option, like my mom recently had vacation and you know what she did? She stayed home Mm -hmm. like and she loved it. She was like, this is great. I love staying home and I don't have to work. But that was like, you know, that's, you know, that's not her choice. And even in a lot of ways, like, I think a lot of times what you get is you get like kids who went to Harvard or like Yale or even like Wesleyan or Vassar. I mean, I could go on and on. Um, Sarah Lawrence. And they, uh, you know, they think that they're poor because they're a comedian living in Bushwick and they have four roommates and they're paying $800 for a room in one of those places. But everyone that they went to college with, you know, they are living in studio apartments, you know, working for corporate law firms in Manhattan, paying, you know, 1500 to $2,000 rent. And those people are rich to them. So because they've chosen, despite all of their privilege, to essentially live in a manufactured poverty, um, you know, they think that they're poor. When in reality, it's like you have the networks that allow you to go upstate because your friend pays for the car, your friend rents the house, they pay the security deposit, they have credit cards that allow you to get, you know, those rentals taken care of it's like no you're not poor for a lot like of, so yeah for a lot of people uh poor people they don't even they they they're so far away from them they can't even understand the concept because there's two things about it one 
a lot of people think that just because the exact amount of money in their wallet at the present moment is like under $20, they're like, oh, wow, I only have $20 in my name. Like, uh, so that's one. And the second thing is um, a lot of these folks have a pinata that's going to burst one day uh, where where they're about to get... Sure, I know what a pinata yeah. is. Thank you. Yeah. Where I think all, hopefully all three of us know. Where, you know, where they're going to get property, where they're going to get like access to... Uh, uh, more wealth and uh, like you said they have those connections now where people like Alex uh, was instead gifted a huge debt by his parents or whatever. Oh, no. Well, it, yeah, that's yeah. I guess it's half true and half not. My mom was a civil servant, so she had a uh, a pension. Uh, but my father uh, died owing a lot of money to a lot of different oh, people. I'm sorry. So oh. that's right. Fortunately, he died before she did, and then we used uh, legal magic to, um, yeah. Is <laughs> anyway, that, is that why you became uh, a lawyer? Because you saw that lawyer waking up in your mom's house every morning working it's so. Funny. In my sister's apartment in, in San Francisco, when we were sitting down to sort of discuss like what to do with like how to uh, sort of rectify my parents' affairs, I drew a, a diagram of like it's very important that everything that we have passes outside the estate because if it hits the estate. We're never going to see it again. Mm. Uh, so oh my we, goodness! We use those uh, those tips and tricks. Uh, by the way, folks, if you have uh, a car, uh, you can get the uh, the pink slip. You can predate it before the person died and make it a gift. Just so you know. Whoa! Wow. There you go. So you have to change oh the date, or, or, or you change the, the gift date? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. I am not saying that we did that. I'm just saying that's a, a tip. You trick. know the IRS is listening, and so is La Migra. <laughs> but you know, Alexis, <laughs> I feel like I've always sort of like uh, loved your comedy because ah, wait. During a compliment, I can't believe that. Um, but you know, I've always loved your comedy because I think your comedy understands that that worldview. Like, I think that you bring that sort of um, satirical edge to a lot of the comedy that you do. And, I, and I, I've always appreciated oh, that. Oh, thank so. you so much. I, I, you know, I don't know if I grew up poor. I don't think I, but I did kind of like, uh, was kind of around it when I was a kid. And um, also, you know, my mom, my parents grew up really poor and they told me about what that was like. My mom grew up in uh, Colombia in the, you know, 60s and she was like, uh so poor and now like my family like you know through like help and stuff like that they've all climbed into the middle class and now there's like a lot of conservatives in my family and they're all like well we were poor and we were fine um, and my mom's like we weren't we weren't fine we did we it. weren't fine we were starving you know like uh and, <laughs> yes. and and there's and also like the other thing that they that the argument is like well you know if they just knew if the poor just want they could just get a job and my mom's like do you remember how much we begged for food and like like there, there were no jobs like nobody nobody's gonna go and get hire a person off the street with no shoes to work at mcdonald's you know like and and that's like the yes. part that like um, some people in our family and people we know like that's the argument we we have but thankfully i grew up in my my mom's wing where we were kind of like trying <laughs> to help poor. but but you know it's funny though i i will say like i don't even think that i am that like observant but it's this sense of like the people that we're around are sometimes so fucking rich and so clueless it's yes. not it's, yeah. but they don't know they don't know because like they're like oh well we only go to Martha's Vineyard like we don't go to the south of France so like we're not rich you know which is yeah. real I mean but poor people do the same thing and anyone who's been poor knows it because it's always like well we're not applying for benefits because like we're not poor because Rhonda across the street like she has 10 kids and they're always begging for food so they're on food stamps because they're poor and 
not us. We're not poor. And I'm like, we're still poor. Like, we're so poor. <laughs> like, you know, it's always like, you know, sometimes it's good to know poor people because poor people always sort of had their ear to the ground about what's going on in the world in a way. Like, they, it's almost like when an earthquake's about to happen and the birds fly away. Like, they're always like... <laughs> because also, they're the people who are like, oh, you, you know, you, you moved into a new house? Like, I know a guy who can pour concrete for you and uh, it only mm-hmm. costs $50. And you're like, really? And they're like, yeah. And it's like, all right, great, <laughs> thanks. I, I definitely... There was a moment where I just told myself you know you know in new york city like doing comedy where i was like if i buy a beer for one more fucking child of an ambassador <laughs> throw myself off a roof because like also in the sense of like they'd always be like oh, i don't have any money and i'd be like oh wow they must have been poor the way i was so i'm gonna buy it and now i'm not so so poor so i'm gonna buy them a drink and then later on you find out oh like uh they don't have any money, but I bought them a beer named after their dad. Oh, my God. <laughs> just, just like something yeah, like I mean, wealth is just so... I mean, that was a really funny meme that went around about how Americans are posting... Um, like, Republicans are posting photos of the Clintons with Jeffrey Epstein, and liberals are posting the photos of Trump with Jeffrey Epstein. It's like, yeah, they're both with Jeffrey Epstein. Like, they're both rich and rape children. Like, yeah, that's our they're leadership. The same, they're in the... It's the same picture both ways. It's like, you just, like, zoom out. This is Jeffrey Epstein standing between uh, Trump and Clinton. Yeah. Yes. Oh my goodness. It's so, I mean, what a great representation of like how it's all just a full circle. Like it's not at all like a, it's not at all like a, a spectrum. It's fully just a yeah. 360 degree circle. Well, it's like George Carlin said, like, you know, it's a club and you ain't in it. <laughs> right. Know? Like that's the, that's the thing. That's why, that's why I don't give a I'm shit. I'm glad that like, I'm glad that Trump is like the, the conservative figure that's destroying America because, uh, he went to Penn <laughs> and his daughter went to Penn and then there's all these liberal people. And I'm like, you realize that you have the same diploma as him. And also like, not only that, but like he's from Queens, Cuomo's from Queens. Like honestly, the, like Cuomo and Trump are a lot more similar than like some Democrats, uh, in other places and stuff like even some republicans are closer to like some republicans are less similar to donald trump than andrew cuomo oh my god trump has and i don't even know trump has the queen's attitude of like he has the the queen's savvy i've always known this about him by the way for years and years and years like i've i didn't know that he was like such a giant racist asshole but like uh i for like I, when I would listen to him talk, you know, in like the '90s or whatever, I was like, I was like, yeah, that's a Queens guy. Like he's he looks at the world the way Queens Queens white people do, and probably I, probably the way I do as well. And then like, yeah, just he and Cuomo, like they they're definitely they definitely look at the world the same way. They just they just know what they're allowed to right. do. It's very, like, because I've always been obsessed with, like, Roy Cohn, and a lot of documentaries have come out about Roy Cohn, who was the lawyer for Donald Trump and his family, but he was also the man who got the Rosenbergs. Like, Ethel Rosenberg probably should not have been electrocuted to death. Like, there was no evidence showing that she knew anything or that she was at all involved. And the judge in New York, this is really interesting, right? The Rosenbergs were Jewish, and they made sure that there was a Jewish judge and that Roy Cohn, who was a Jewish lawyer, were, were on the prosecution team because they didn't want him to look so bad that they were literally doing a witch hunt for these Jews who were always affiliated with the Red Scare in this really hateful way because of anti-immigration and jingoism and a distrust of Jewish people. Um, And so, of course, like, that's so New York. Like, oh, we got to fry these Jews, so how are we going to do it? Oh, well, these Jews like us, so, like, let's put them on the judge seat and, like, in the prosecution team. (laughs) Meanwhile, like, apparently Roy Cohn was out back, um, 
you know, telling the judge, do it, do it, do it on a private payphone, you know. Oh, my God. It's really, it's all come out. I mean, and Roy Cohn was eventually disbarred, but uh, the documentaries about Roy Cohn are really interesting because they show that the tactics that he used to help defend wealthy racists in New York City for so long within the Democratic machine there... um, that that was exactly what Trump does, where he literally just says no, no, and like fake news, and he works with the press. Like Roy Cohn was really great at getting the press on his side, because of course the Red Scare never would have happened if it weren't for like the press. Um, yeah, they yeah. fell in like hook, line, and sinker behind him. So, Yellow journalism. Yeah, I mean it's really, I mean it's it was it's really been eye opening to me because I'm more of like a you know I, I'm familiar with like the Jeff Sessions kind of uh, Republican like that kind of racist Republican. Yeah. So when Trump was first elected, I was truly baffled. I said like, who is he? Why does he behave this way? Um, but luckily, my boss actually is from Queens originally. Um, he's like from a very like a German immigrant part of Queens, and his family's been there a really long time. And he was like, you can go to any Irish bar in Queens right now and there's like 50 trumps lined up at the at the bar yeah. at like four o'clock in the afternoon um also new york media new york media is like very conservative uh you know maybe like every now and then like there'll be like a op-ed in the new york times to not but but again the new york times got us into the iraq war oh my <laughs> god know? uh the new york post uh every day it's like they ask the cops to beat the shit out of somebody. Like, basically, that's like they put somebody's picture on the front and they're like, police, beat the shit out of this person. And then, and like, it doesn't matter. Like, they're all like just uh, uh, conservative. Like, they may like, you know, whatever, like sound like anti-South or whatever. And maybe they are like anti-Southern. But like, they are, they're pretty conservative. They're pretty... Uh, um, what's the word when people uh, um, react? Rea- they're reactionary. Right. <laughs> what the words when people react? They're very reactionary. The New York New York media, and it's and I I can I can imagine like in the the twenties, thirties, forties, the the entire media was reactionary. Like this is a fight for American justice. Like that probably every fucking newspaper said yeah. that, except for like one that was printed, you know, in the fucking backyard, right, like Eugene V. Debs, like, like the socialist <laughs> yeah. papers. They were always trying to um, like the the journalists themselves were afraid of being blacklisted for being like called communists and so they too i'm sure were walking a fine line at all times actors in hollywood yeah well i was always really interested in the huac hearings when i was growing up because i did feel like i grew up in a bit of a witch hunt um Mm -hmm. because it's this i mean i campaigned for barack obama in 2007 in my county which went 80 percent for john mccain and we were chased uh I, i don't know if you know andrew colson who's also a comedian he we grew up together and uh, he uh, is uh, like half Cuban, half white, and his family's very liberal. And they're originally from Chicago. And we were chased from someone's house one time because they thought that we were like we were like communists for campaigning for Barack Obama. It was one of the and it's true. yeah it was one of the first times that I ever heard the N word said like in a hateful wow. way. And I was like sixteen too. That was really 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 wild. And of course Virginia went blue, not my county, but the state went blue. It's yeah. very eye-opening experience. Um, and, of course, like, I was still ignorant when I left this town. Like, uh, you know, I'm still... I'm always very... That's why I'm so skeptical of things always is because I left home and I was like, oh, my God. Like, there's so much... Like, you could have asked anyone... You can ask anyone in this town, like, what language do they speak in Iran? And they hate Iran. And they will not know. They'll say Arabic or something. I mean, even when I graduated from, like, when I was in high school, if you asked me what language that they spoke in Egypt, I didn't know. I didn't know what Arabic was. 
I would have said, like, Egyptian. That's me in high school, um, which is, like, a big deal. That's, like, I mean, I use myself as a perfect example. Like, I was so ignorant and... You know, I've definitely gotten better thanks to the patience of like a lot of people. Um, Millie Tamara's included has like long like corrected me on like so many things that I like have gotten wrong, and that's another reason why I fought so hard to change these names because the NAACP has always been adamant that these names are superficial, these mascots are superficial. But to give you an idea, we used to play black schools from the city of Richmond, and the cheerleaders would literally chant, like, go Confederates. And they'd be like, C-O-N-F-E-D. Like, it was wild. And that makes an impact on people. And a really good thing... Were they cute? I don't know. I'm gay. Um, (laughs) I'm gay. Uh, So it was, like, this thing of, like... um, you know, they are superficial, but the good thing about changing the names and taking on the statues is that they're tangible. They're physical things that you can measure. Because as we know, up yeah. in New York, like a bunch of white liberals can be like, well, we're going to do like equity and diversity training. And it literally means nothing. There's no goals actually set out. And then there's no timelines to achieve those goals. But with these school names, it started the conversation and there was a tangible physical goal that we achieved and now we can really start the conversation about like what did those names represent and what is our racist legacy in this county uh, which is good and the other part about it is you know a huge part of class warfare and you know the the intersection of race and class is wealth and in new york for a lot of people they're untouchably rich uh, they're just, you know, they're like in another stratosphere. They're like, if a black person ever made enough money to live in my apartment, in my apartment building, I'd be, I'd be fine with them. But most likely, they will not, right. you know. Uh, so, but uh, in in other states, and I, I sometimes wonder about this, where like, you know, like a Virginia or a Kentucky, where there are rich people, but there there are more. It's more of a middle class. I wonder if there are people who are like holding the flame of racism more because it's like they're so close i mean you should know there is incredible wealth in the state of virginia incredible wealth Mm -hmm. i mean it's i mean we are in the dc suburbs like the dc suburbs are a part of the state of virginia so the majority of those the state's population lives in those suburbs so for instance the city of alexandria has like a couple of like hundred thousand people right the counties, the entire counties in the leg of Virginia that goes into Kentucky and West Virginia, the whole county will have 5,000 people in it. So you need 20 of those counties to equal one city in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. on the side of Virginia. So that's why we're a blue state, right? But that wealth there, I mean, the NRA is there. Quantico is there. The NSA is in, like, Maryland just over the line, and a lot of people commute. A lot of the Republican politicians from all across the country live in Northern Virginia as like that's their home. I mean, it's ridiculous. It, the wealth in the state and and the wealth like you can see are we have a de- we have Democratic leadership now. We're blue through and through through the entire state, right? North on uh, yeah. So he did blackface, and that's what they call a compromise candidate in Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> because you look at like Tim Kaine, who was Hillary's. Um, you know, VP pick friend, friend, you know, just like friends, you know, but well, he's not a VP pick anymore. Now he's, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's really wild because, you know, that is the exact kind of like white 
man Democrat who used to be a missionary or used to be in the military who's a moderate, that's the kind of Democrat who gets elected in Virginia right now. Like in the legislature, it's getting more progressive because there are real pockets of progressiveness and progressivism in the state. But I mean, it's, it's few and far between compared to, yeah. I mean, even it's really interesting how like someone like Julia Salazar in New York City has trouble getting elected. Um, you know, that's, and, and she gets elected in a, a majority minority district district right and then yeah. it's really interesting for me to enter new york city politics because then you get someone like yvette clark who started out in city politics she's a black woman i believe she's like descended her parents were immigrants maybe she might have been an immigrant and you know she's getting caucused out or primaried out by um like a more progressive also black immigrant man who says that she's like bought by the party machine you know right. like she's my uh, congressman actually or congresswoman right interesting i mean it's so it's so interesting because you know my grandfather was a Democrat down in the border of Texas and Mexico and they're all Democrats because they were all um, they all benefited from FDR's WPA programs because they like built roads down there and they they uh, subsidized agriculture and that's how my family like was able to participate in that to stay alive during the Great Depression but he would talk about how you know obviously the southern states would send racist delegations to the Democratic National Convention and you see that when LBJ and JFK were lobbying to get the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act um, passed. But, you know, the P- the Democrats from the northern cities, like some- like Shirley Chisholm, right? Like, she was the first black woman to ever be elected to Congress. And obviously, she's from New York. And, like, she was a Democrat. But that was in the 70s. I mean, that was not... I mean, it was not progressive. Right. Like, they were not sending black women in droves to represent the Democratic Party in Congress. I mean, Shirley Chisholm, like, when she died in, like, what, like, 2000-something? I mean, she, like, was contemporary. And um, he would talk about how wild those those things were because... Um, you know, the, the, a lot of the Northern Democrats would turn against the Civil Rights Act just as quickly as the Southern Democrats. So it's like a who very... Was who was the governor of New York who ran for president? Was it Al Smith? Al Smith, president? yeah. And they he hated had, him because he was Catholic. Well, I remember he, when he ran for president, he like went on a nationwide tour and like for the first time. And he was just like, oh, I'm fucked. <laughs> you know, for, <laughs> the governor of New York, he was just like, he went to this, he went all around like the South and stuff like that. And he was just like, yeah, no, I got no shot. Um, wow. he, like he just didn't know. Cause you uh, had the Republicans too, like the Rockefellers, like they were for the civil rights act, obviously. Yeah. But then what was so wild was that the Democrats in the North, they needed the Republicans in the North to side with them and the Republicans in the South because the Democrats, like they needed all three of those coalitions to be in favor of the civil rights act because the Democrats in the South were so racist. Yeah. Well, and here I am. Uh, oh my hosting a podcast, Alex. Where you're from? You're like you're from like uh, whatever Modesto. Oh my God, California. you can't ask yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have my papers. Um, yeah, from the Central Valley of uh, California, Northern California. That, is that blue or red? Uh, I'd say it's 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 kind of a mix. It's like we we've had when I was growing up, there was. Uh, like in elementary school and that kind of thing, there were, we had Republican, uh, mayors and, uh, we sort of, we had, um, this guy Pombo who was a representative who was awful. Uh, and I think he finally got, um, thrown out of office, I think in 2008, uh, for like massive corruption. But, uh, I'd say that we were, we were purple leaning red. 
Uh, was that like Santa Maria area? No, or? it's like San Joaquin uh, County. So it's uh, just south of Sacramento. Uh, Stockton is the county seat where I'm from. And then oh, it's okay. like, it's all like orchards. Uh, like there's some light manufacturing and that kind of thing. We used to be in yeah. shipping when that was still a thing. Because Maritza Motanez's family is from like Fresno. And I've yeah. talked to her a lot about sort of like the demographics of California. Because my ex boyfriend and I, uh, he's Venezuelan, and we drove up from LA to San Francisco. And it was really interesting because there were a lot of Latino people in that area. But what was really funny was that, like, so my mom's family, they're Tejano. So they're from like South Texas. They've been there. Like the border jumped them. And so, like, my grandfather's name was Miguel, and he went by Mike. Like, we called him Papa Mike. And when we drove through central california it was like all of these like latinx teens working at in and out burger who their names were like joe (laughs) and johnny and i was like oh i'm so familiar with this because that's like where my mom's from and i was like oh i didn't think about it but yeah i'm sure that's like the mentality in the middle of nowhere california because it used to be mexico and so of course there must be like native like um people from when it was Mexico still living there who have just, like, assimilated into United States culture over, yeah. like, three I mean, my, years. Uh, yeah, my my grandfather, uh, who was born in 1888, so he came over when he was a teenager, and my grandmother sort of the same thing. We, we weren't sure if she was born in Texas or in Mexico. Uh, uh, but my dad was the first generation, and the stories that he tells, you know, he was they were, like, you know, basically Italian rednecks is kind of what they were dealing with because <laughs> they were the guys who yeah. owned all the fucking ranches out there uh, and still do to this day. And the first integration case uh, for Latino people to attend schools with white children came from California. Yeah, it makes sense. Very so, interesting. And here yeah. Alex is. <laughs> yeah. Do you wish, Alex, that they didn't let you in so you wouldn't have any school debt? Like, <laughs> oh, you, are you talking about law school or uh, undergrad? No, just all school in general. All school know? in general. I, every once in a while, I suffer from uh, Clarence Thomas syndrome, sure. Oh, my. <laughs> don't can, even get me started. Yeah, because that, that was his whole thing, because I think he uh, suffered horrible racism at Yale, and he walked away from the experience being like, I, sh- I had no business being there. Affirmative action is evil. Uh, and I will destroy it with every. He is the day. he is the only the only Supreme Court justice who has not gone to only Ivy League schools his entire life. Yeah. The only one. And it's because undergrad he went to a school down in Georgia. That's right. Yeah. I he, mean that. Yeah, and and to and to his credit, he does tend to hire a lot of students outside mm-hmm. of the you know the super hyper elite. Um, yeah. Law school. He's also a monster. He's a monster. But, um, <laughs> a loves man. Coke. <laughs> oh my God. The drink. The drink. <laughs> you know, what's interesting too, is that, um, you know, talking about like Latino people coming over a really long time ago, that's why Latino people are considered white on the U S census. So like when we check white of Hispanic origin, uh, the reason why is because when my family came over after the Mexican American war, they were, you know, mixed of Spanish descent. So they like they saw themselves as European, you know, obviously we're not going to delve into the way (laughs) that race is seen in Latin America, because I'm not going to have that conversation with you guys. But, uh, like, (laughs) but you know, they were like, they were like, we want to be full citizens of the United States of America. And this was before the Civil War. So black people were still enslaved in Texas. It, it entered as a slave state. But the sad reality was, if you were to be a full citizen of the United States in the 1840s, when Mexico gave, or not gave up, was it, Texas was stolen from them. Um, which is interesting, because it was also rooted in 
the more European Mexicans living in the North hating what Santa Ana was doing in the South, where the South is obviously more Indio. It's like Chiapas and all those places who like tend to rebel and tend to be more revolutionary. So they broke away from that, right? And the only way for them to be full American citizens was to be white. And that is why to this day, Latino people check white of Hispanic origin on uh, U.S. Census documents. Well, I hope all three of us here. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I hope all three of us did. Uh, We're going to leave it with at that. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the pod. Oh, I'm so happy. So good to talk to you. Glad you're both like happy and healthy. Uh, Well, okay. (laughs) It's a half truth. Yeah, it's half. I'm not going to tell you which. Um, Ryan, <laughs> Ryan, where where can the fans um, and you know? Well, I'll have to ask them to change their uh, origin on their internet. But like, where can the fans see you uh, online? Uh, everyone should go to offmag.com, a w f m a g dot com, um, and that is where our satire website is. We have a great uh, crew of people who are all queer writers writing queer satire. Um, not to hurt your ass. feelings, I'm Alexis. Your ass. <laughs> Alexis, your feelings are hurt so easily. Um, and then also on Twitter, you can follow me on all my problems with the Z, two Zs. And then on Instagram, I'm all my problems with one Z. If you, so. if you, if you're white and you follow Ryan's uh, Twitter, uh, you, you may want to like take like a little bit of like, like a Valium before you see some of these tweets because they will. <laughs> They will enrage you. They sometimes the enrage me, and, and uh, they're not meant. I don't to. think you need to tell white people to take value. I think they're. <laughs> I don't think they need you. Uh, and as we do every episode, we leave with the final thoughts from Alex Estrada. Alex, any final thoughts? Final thoughts from Alex Estrada today. Uh, Alexis Pereira has recorded his podcast. Now let him listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm cutting that out. I'm for it. I'm going to definitely cut that out.